Well, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 12? Nehemiah chapter 12. It's kind of amazing that we have gotten to uh, almost the end of this book. Uh, Nehemiah, if you remember, was working in uh, the king's palace, and he was um, sharing and doing his service there. And he had heard something about his hometown. He had heard that his hometown was broken down and needed repair. And if you remember, Nehemiah was a man who went right to prayer. He, he felt emotional. He felt burdened. But before he acted, what he did was he prayed and he, he consulted God. And you could see prayer is a, a major component of this book. You'll also see that word is also a major component of this book. Confession um, worship, and we'll be dealing with the issue of worship this morning. You've been seeing him praying and waiting on God that he didn't act ahead of schedule. He wanted to pray and be filled by God's uh, work as he went through. We've seen the fact that there's been opposition, and whenever you do God's work, oftentimes you will suffer opposition. Opposition from the world, opposition from Satan, even opposition from within, our own flesh will attack us. Um, so there was opposition. You notice that there was opposition outside the body. Pastor Doug tell, uh, dealt with that. And then opposition within the body of believers. Uh, we talked about a word-centered revival, that the word was filled. And as they spoke the word, you remember what happened, that the, the people were emotional and they were caught off guard. And it's like, wow, and they were praising God. But they were also recognizing as they heard the word that they were recognizing how far they had fallen from God and how desperately they needed God. And you remember they had gone into a period of grief and, and God, they said, the leader said, hold off, wait, not right now. Because you remember that verse, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So it was, it was during a time of celebration. So we're not going to focus on the confession right now. But then you remember a little bit later on, a week later, after that time of wonderful um, pleasure and, and joy and celebration, what did they do? They had a time of confession. And in that time of confession, the word was preached and the word was preached again. And then they recognized how oftentimes they had fallen away from God. We saw last week how choices matter. The choices that you make, that they had to repopulate. The, the walls have been built here in the city, but now we need people to live in the land. And if you remember that, lots were cast for people to go in. And you would think that a lot fell on a person, that they would grudgingly go back in. But no, if you remember, as we heard last week, they were willing, they were desiring. The people that were outside the city were praising the people that were going in. And the people that were going in were going in willingly, sacrificially, back into the city to repopulate it. Now we've come into chapter 12, and now they're dedicating the walls. I'm looking forward to the day that we'll be able to dedicate our building and be able to sit there and say, praise God for what you've given us. Well, these people had gone through this process of creating this wall or rebuilding this wall, and now they are at this process of dedicating it. You remember the book breaks down into two phases. The first phase is about the protection of the city, so it is now rebuilding the walls. And the second phase of the book is about the purification of the city, the work that God does within us. You can build a beautiful wall, you can build beautiful buildings, but if you do not have people that are growing and passionate for God, it is just a building. It's just a wall. So we need changed people and changed lives. This morning I want to talk about this idea of a dedicated life, a worshipful life. 
There's a passage in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. It's almost like a doxology. Paul says this, For from him and through him and to him all things are. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That Paul ends this section where he's talking about the gospel and talking about the grace of God by ending it with this great triumphant praise to God. Well, that's exactly what these people are doing. They're here to dedicate a wall, but they're also here to dedicate themselves to God. So I want you to consider the idea of worship. When you think of the idea of worship, what comes to your mind? Worship is this idea of worthship, which I thought was interesting. God is worthy of praise. He is worth praise. And that's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we preach. And that's why you listen. And that's why we serve. That's what we do. In the Hebrew, the word worship means to bow down or to pay homage to. The Greek word, which is found in the New Testament, I like this. It means to kiss towards. I like that. There's another Greek word in the New Testament that talks about worship, and it means to serve or to minister to one another. So if you take it all together, the Old Testament language and the New Testament language both involve our attitude, respect, and awe, and reverence, and then it also comes out in our actions. Praising, bowing down, singing, serving one another, that's what worship is to be. Worship is not just a portion of a service. Worship is supposed to be our lives. It's supposed to be all that we do internally and externally about bringing glory and honor to God. Well, as they come to this section here in verse 27 of chapter 12, we read of a people who are ready to dedicate a wall and to dedicate their lives. Read with me here. It says this. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with what? Gladness and with thanksgiving and with singing and with cymbals and harps and lyres and the sons and the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Natophetites and also Beth Gilgal and Geba and Asmatheth. And the singers have built themselves villages around Jerusalem. So what they were doing is that they're bringing these people together and they are preparing to worship God. They are preparing to um, make his name known and uplift him. You know, I was thinking about this idea of, um, there's some essential questions that I work on with people, with my clients. Uh, one of the essential questions is, who am I? A number of people try to figure out what my identity is, who am I? You know, what's my identity? Who, what's my meaning? Uh, why am I even here is another question that's essential. It's talking about our purpose, our intentionality. Oftentimes when people don't know their identity, who am I, or their intentionality, the purpose of their lives, why I'm here, they lose focus. There's a catechism um, that I love. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And in this catechism, unfortunately, Churches today have gotten away from some catechisms. Catechisms are ways that we teach doctrine to people. And in this Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question of it is this. It goes question and then answer. The question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is what? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That if you think of the reason why you're here, the reason who you are and why you're here it comes down to this, to bring glory to God, 
to reverence him and to enjoy him forever. When they say the chief end, it means your primary purpose. What's the aim of your life? What's the glory of your life? What's the goal of your life? Is the goal of your life, is the aim of your life, is the purpose of your life to bring glory and honor to God? Then I thought about that idea of glory, because it says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what does it mean to glorify God? Glorify literally means to make God more glorious or make God glorious. But then when you sit down and think about it, can I make and can you make God more than he already is? Because God is already glorious. No, you can't. I can't make God glorious, more glorious, and you can't either. So it's not about God making God glorious. It is actually displaying God's glory to a world, reflecting his glory out to a world that is dark, a world that needs desperate light, a, need, a world that needs hope, a world that needs peace. So our chief and primary purpose is to reflect God and to bring glory to God. See, God-centered living, that God created us originally before sin to be centered on God, but then after sin, what ended up happening is that we became centered on ourselves. And inevitably, we took our glory away from God and tried to place our glory upon ourselves. It says also to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, there's this passage I love in Psalm 73. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. See, the aim of our lives cannot just be to dedicate a wall or to dedicate a building. It has to be about a dedicated life, a life set apart by God. Well, this morning, I'd like you to consider six ways that I think that we could show that dedicated life. Look with me in verse 30, and we'll see the first of the six ways. A worshipful and a dedicated life starts with a life of purity. It starts with a life of purity. It says in verse 30, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. Do you see what they did? They purified first themselves. The leaders purified themselves, the religious leaders. Then what they did was they purified the people, the congregation that was there. And then the third level of purification was, now we're going to purify the walls. We're going to dedicate these walls. Well, that's the element. This idea of purification, I, I looked, up the past, uh, looked up the word, and in the original language, it means to be clean, to cleanse. I like this one, to shine or to be bright. It means to be swept clean. It means to be pronounced or declared clean. Wouldn't it be amazing for us just to be pronounced and declared that I'm clean? Because I know in my life, and you know in yours, that oftentimes we struggle with not feeling clean. And the reality is, is that we look at things in our lives that we struggle with day after day after day, and it hinders us. I know, and we don't like talking about it, but I know that there are some in this room that struggle with sexual sin. And they struggle with this day after day, and it's this hidden thing that people don't realize, and they hide it. They don't want other people to know. I know that there are people in this room that struggle with substance abuse. I know that there are people in this room that struggle with lying. I know that there are people that struggle with stealing. I know that there are people in this room that struggle with depression and anger and frustration and anxieties and all of these things that just get us at our heart. And what God wants to do in your heart 
is to bring about a purity in your life. He wants to bring about a purity and a holiness, not just in the actions that we do on Sunday morning when we come here, but he wants to do that purity from the inside out. Because you remember, worship is about the attitude of our heart and then it's about the actions of our lives. And perhaps some of the reasons why you and I struggle with these things, impurity in our lives, is because we are not putting Christ as the worship center of our lives. So what they did was they realized that the first thing that they needed to do in order to have a worshipful and a dedicated life, they needed to have a life of purity. Well, there was a second thing that they needed to do. They needed to have a life of praise. Look with me here in verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up to the wall, and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. I'll stop there for a second. So now what they're doing is this. They've gotten the singers and the people, and they've divided these two. What we're going to see in the next several verses is this praise service. They are going to divide the people into two camps. One camp is going to be Nehemiah's camp. The other camp is going to be Ezra's camp. And now what they're going to do is they are going to come to the walls and they are going to have a praise service. They're going to be singing and praising God for all that he's done. And they're going to go in Psalm 48, it says this, Walk up to Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through the citadels, that you may tell the generations that this is God, our God forever and ever, and he will guide us forever. I could almost hear them singing that psalm as they were walking around the wall. So Nehemiah's camp is following here, and now they're going to go one way, and Ezra's camp is going to go the other way, and they're going to actually walk on the walls. We'll see that in a moment. And they're having this praise service. I was thinking about praise because oftentimes part of the reason why I struggle with praise is because I become self-focused. I find myself at times, I'm sure you do as well, struggling with emotions that happen within. I don't know if you ever struggle with guilt. I don't know if you ever struggle with envy. I don't know if you ever struggle with jealousy. I don't know if you ever struggle with pleasing yourself. Do you ever struggle with self-pity? You know, at times I sit with clients that struggle with anxiety and depressions in their lives, and part of the reason why they're struggling with it is because they are focusing so much on themselves and their circumstances, and they're not looking away from themselves, they're looking within themselves, hoping to find the answer, and you will never find the answer within. And God says this, that I want you to look away from yourself and look to God. And this praise service now, instead of moving within to try to find the answer, the answer is to move outside of myself, self-denial, look to please God, look to serve one another, and the service began this way. So these two great choirs of this praise service are going, and they're going up on top of the wall, and they're praising God, and then they're going to go to the temple, we'll see that in a moment, and they're praising God. See, a worshipful and a dedicated life starts with purity, but it needs to move to the aspect of praise. So I don't know where you are in your life when it comes to praise. Out of our mouths come complaints very easily and so very quickly, and the complaints that come out of our mouths are a byproduct of the things that are happening in our hearts and our lives. And why is it that those who have been given the greatest gift that you can ever imagine, his son, life, forgiveness, himself, is the greatest gift that he's given us. Why is it that out of our mouths, far oftentimes, far too oftentimes, 
what comes out of our mouth is anything but the gospel, anything but praise. See, a worshipful life and a dedicated life is a life of purity first. Second is a life of praise. But then there's this third aspect. It is a life of gratitude. See, it's a small phrase here. It says that in verse 31, the two great choirs, and it says that they gave thanks, gave thanks. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it talked about the Gentile nation, the Gentiles, and it talked about the fact that part of the dilemma that Gentiles have, non-believers have, is this. It says this in verse 21. For although they knew God, they know that there's a God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Humanity has a problem, and humanity's problem is ingratitude. I think ingratitude happens for one of several reasons in our lives. There are many, but there are two that I want you to focus on this morning. We have ingratitude in our hearts and our lives first because we have a sense of entitlement, a sense of entitlement. We live in a nation today that is fueled by the sense of I deserve this, I demand this, it's my right. Entitlement. We hear it in our homes, we hear it in our marriages, we hear it in our families. And this sense of entitlement is destroying us from the inside out. And when you find yourself feeling entitled, you believe that somebody is supposed to give you something rather than the fact that I don't deserve anything. And when we lift that entitlement from just earthly level to God, G.K. Chesterton said it this way, we take the God of mercy and we place him at our mercy. That instead of serving and worshiping God, we make him our servant. We do that far too often. We magnify ourselves and we think that we deserve it. And ingratitude happens in our hearts and lives first because of entitlement. But I think there's a second reason why ingratitude happens. And I think ingratitude happens because we misunderstand sin. We do not see the sinfulness of sin. We don't recognize it. We actually justify ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back. We think we're pretty good people left to our own devices. And we think we're pretty good, and therefore God should give us heaven. No. If God wanted to, he could give us all eternity away from him in hell. But out of his grace, he chose to save people. And ingratitude comes from the fact that I minimize my sin. I think I can handle it. I think I can make it right. I can solve this problem on my own. You can't. You need to look away from yourself. There's another catechism I like, and it's uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism has three steps to it. Step number one is guilt. It's understanding the guilt and my sin and the depth of my sin. And when you start to understand the depth of my sin, that nothing into my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. When you start to understand that I am spiritually bankrupt, I've got nothing to give you, God. That guilt leads me to an answer, grace. That the grace I need to look away from myself to Christ. And that grace does something amazing because as I start to look at the guilt and the depth that I have, now I look to Christ and what he has done for me and that God looks at you as clean, as righteous in his sight because of what God has done for you. He's come into your life to be part of your life. Guilt, grace, and the third element of the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, is gratitude. 
Do you see it? That if you can understand the debt that you owe, and that you understand that the debt has been paid by God, then it should lead to gratitude in your heart and life. And maybe the reason why we struggle with a worshipful and a dedicated life is because we fail to recognize all that God has done for us. See, gratitude is this natural expression of thanks in response to a blessing, to protection, or to love. Great gratitude is so closely aligned to grace and faith that God has granted you grace and he's also granted you the gift of faith. And that should produce a worshipful attitude in our hearts, in our lives. Say, thank you for all that you've done for me. See, it's not primarily about the actions that you do either. Coming here on Sunday morning is great, but it's not primarily about a thankful action. It's about a thankful heart attitude. Do you recognize that the depth of the gift, the immense gift that he's given you in Christ, a worshipful attitude must be a life of gratitude. Let's keep reading. And after them, they went, verse 32, and after them went Hosea, half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, and Meshulam, and Judah, and Benjamin, and Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Maliah, Gilea, Maya, Nathaniel, Judah, Hananiah, with musical instruments of David, and the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them, verse 37, at the fountain gate. They went up straight before them to the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. Now the other choir, Nehemiah's group here, the other choir of those who gave thanks went up north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall. Can I stop there for a moment? On the wall. Does that remind you of anything? In chapter 4, verse 3, one of the mocking things, I think Pastor Doug preached this one, um, one of the mocking things that the people said, Tobiah the Amorite said was this, yes, they're building a wall, and a fox could go up on that wall, and remember what? Break it down. And now... They were worried about foxes going up on those walls and breaking them down. And what's happening now? They're marching up on these walls. So God can do an amazing work, and he did do an amazing work in their lives. Keep going. Uh, The end of verse 38. Above the tower of the ovens and the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and the gate of Yeshena, and then by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of hundreds, and the sheep gate, and they came to the halt of the gate and the guards. And both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. So as you see this worship service, they have now gone from um, the north and the south. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra's group are coming up on this wall, and they've marched on the wall, and now they've marched to the center of the city. And where are they going? They're going to the house of God. See, what they're doing is this. They're recognizing that the walls provide some external protection, but the central aspect of their lives must be the worship of God. So what do they do? They go to their church. They go to the house of God. I and half the officials with me. Jump down to verse 43. 
because this will give us our fourth element of a worshipful life, a life of joy. Listen to the repeated word in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do you hear it? Joy, rejoicing. There was something that God was doing immensely in their hearts and their lives, that yes, there was uh, purity, and yes, there was praise, and yes, there was thanksgiving, but there was joy. This word is mentioned three times. Rejoicing is mentioned three times in this verse. One time in the next verse, which we'll read in a second. Joy is mentioned twice here. Nehemiah, you remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says what? The joy of the Lord is our strength. strength." How about Psalm 28, verse 7? It says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts with a song, and I give thanks. There is some joy that is happening within these people that they're focusing away from their circumstances. And I know, and you know, oftentimes in our hearts and our lives, the reason why we struggle with joylessness in our hearts is that we have found ourselves focusing more on the circumstances and people than focusing on God. What the world promises you is this temporal thing. What the world promises you is going to be short-lived. What the world promises you is that there is a person or a circumstance or a thing that's going to change you. But the reality is this. People will fail you, circumstances will change, and ultimately that type of joy is going to be shallow. It's going to be disappointing. But what God gives you is a joy that you can exalt in that is is amazing joy. This is a lasting joy that comes from the fact that it's rooted and grounded in God and His character. This joy is found in Him, and that joy is found in you and work what God has done. Think about your salvation. If you can think about the guilt and this debt that you owed and the fact that God in His amazing grace has given you more than you could deserve, and He hasn't just simply given you forgiveness of sins, He has given you Himself. He's given you a relationship with him that goes for all of eternity. It's just amazing. That kind of joy should just so fill our hearts and our lives. Pastor Tim yesterday used a verse um, from chapter 12 of um, Hebrews, and it says this, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God, that what he did for you and what he did for me was to go to the cross, and that was joyous for him to go through that, to bring glory and honor to his Father, and to win his people back. Last week we heard about choices. I wonder about the choices that you make. Do you make a choice for joy in your heart and your life? I choose joy. See, if you choose circumstances and if you're focused on circumstances or people or things, I will tell you, you will be disappointed. But if I choose joy in spite of it, that Christ could look through a cross and he looked to a cross and through a cross because he was looking past that cross to what? What that cross was going to earn. Your salvation and the glory of his Father. There's one other thing I want to talk about with the joy here. 
At the end of verse 43, it says this, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You know, them chapel people are pretty loud, right? <laughs> and the neighbors sit around here, it's like, oh, there they go again, singing, oh, there they go again, praising God. It's like, oh, my goodness, and it's like the noise, right? That's not what they were hearing. They weren't hearing sound. They were hearing joy. That rang out to me as I was reading this this week. People far away who do not know God are hearing joy in your life. See, in a worshipful and a dedicated life, what should pour out of our lives is joy because this world desperately is in need of joy. They are despairing. They are despondent. They are depressed. They don't have an answer. They feel hopeless. They feel helpless. And you have an answer. The answer has been made known to you. Are you living that answer out? It says that God made them rejoice. Paul was on that road to Damascus, right? And God radically changed his heart and his life. He changed the directory of his life and brought him out of death to life. He's done the same for you if you know him. And that should produce a joy in your life. Let's move to our last elements. Verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over all the storerooms and the contributions, and the first fruits and the tithe, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites, according to the fields of the town, for Judah rejoiced, there it is again, over the priest and the Levites who ministered. Stop there, because that leads us to our fifth of a worshipful life. A worshipful and dedicated life must be a life of sacrificial giving. A life of sacrificial giving. They actually had to appoint people to take in the contributions. Now the wall has been created. Now we're back at the center of our town, the worship service, the house of God. Now we need contributions from the people. So there were contributions. There were first fruits that were bought there. There were tithes that were brought there. There was a principle that uh, I think is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it says this. They gave first to the Lord... And then they gave to God and gave to others. First to the Lord and then to others. See, the dedication that happens in your life and in my life is first that we give our praise and honor to God. And then what we do is we move out to serve one another. That's the principle of sacrificial giving. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, it says this, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his where? heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, see one of the elements of a worshipful and a dedicated life is the fact that I want to give. Because, I think, it's the idea of understanding how much God has given for you, and everything that you have is not yours anyway, it's, it's on loan to you, so use it to serve others. J. Hudson Taylor, a missionary, said this, When God's work is done in God's way, for God's glory, it will not lack 
God's support. <laughs> so, by God's grace, we're going into a building pretty well um, financially. And that's because of some people that just continue to give sacrificially. But there will be upkeep for this building and other things, and then you are asked, required, to give sacrificially. I, I don't know how many of us discipline ourselves on a weekly basis, or at least to take a portion of your salary, as you're able, to, to share with the body. You know, we have an offering box in the back. We have the electronic things. I don't want to make this about money. I do want you to understand this, that part of the reason of service is the external things that we do, that God has granted us this gift of my job, um, the money that I have, to be used for the glory of God. See, it's loving God and serving others. A worshipful life also ends with this, a life of service. Verse 45. And they perform the service of their God in the service of purification. And as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving. We'll stop there in verse 46. A worshipful and a dedicated life is a life of service. A service to God and then a service to the community. Clearly, there are some in this room that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that happened at your conversion is that the Holy Spirit came into your life, and another thing that happened at your conversion is that you were given a spiritual gift. Now, my spiritual gift is not singing, and if anybody sits around me, they know that. <laughs> That's why I look away from myself to someone else. But I do have some gifts, right? And so do you. And the question is this, that a worshipful and a dedicated life is one who is looking away from themselves to say, I'm going to use the gift that God has granted me to worship God and to serve others. See, God uses different people and different gifts and different passions to accomplish his work. Warren Wearsby put it this way, each person is important, each task is significant. Whether it's stripping, um, I lost the phrase, whether it's stripping um, insulation off of wires, whether it's getting up and singing, whether it's greeting in the back, whether it's preparing our, our communion table, Whatever your gift is, are you using it for the glory and honor of God? A sacrificial and a worshipful heart is a life of service. So I want to close with this. Who are you? Do you remember who you are? You were bought with a price. That God has done something amazing in your heart to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you know him. In 1 Peter it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It got me thinking about our purpose. We are here to do one thing, 
to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's the only reason why we're here. Proclaim the excellencies of God for those that are in darkness today. Because every single one of us, if you are now a believer, every single one of us were blind. We were deaf. We were dead. And God made us alive. And now you have the huge privilege of being part of his family. And not only just part of his family, you are an ambassador for him. That he could use you to shine light to this dark world. Something about light, right? Jesus began, uh, God began Genesis with what? Let there be light. Paul talked about this theme of light. He said that the, the God of this world, Satan, is blinding the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you have been given the opportunity to be able to shine light. So a genuine worship, a worshipful heart is a life of purity. It's a life of praise. It's a life of gratitude. It's a life of joy. It's a life of sacrificial giving. It's a life of service. Well, you know, and I know, that we will fail on this. Pastor Doug, a couple of weeks from now, I think we'll uh, close out Nehemiah, and you'll see how the people failed at their, their commitment. We do that. We make these commitments to God, and far too often we fail. That's why we look away from ourselves to one who never failed. See, the true worshiper is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was this, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became what? Poor. Poor that you through his poverty might be rich. See, Jesus was purity, he never sinned ever that from the womb to the grave and then for all of eternity jesus never sinned because from the womb to the grave i'm a sinner jesus was a praise saturated man fully god and fully man he was here to worship his father day after day that was the aim of his life jesus was a thankful man gratitude he had gratitude to even his sinful parents and those that were around him, he had gratitude for a father who would never leave him and a Holy Spirit that was with him. He had joy that was unspeakable. And he talked about that unspeakable joy that he had that he wants you to have. Indescribable, indestructible joy. And if we talk about sacrificial giving, there was no one greater than him because greater love hath no one than this. What? That he laid down his life for his friends. And then when we talk about service, there was none like Christ because he did not come here to be served, but what? To serve. to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So this morning, I pray that you would look away to yourself to Christ. If you've never trusted him, I pray today would be the day of your salvation. I pray today would be the day that you stop trying to do it on your own and recognize you can't, but he can. He has already done it. He will do it, and I can only in Him. I pray that as you look away from yourself to Him and you align your life with Him, I pray that you will remember who your identity is. Who am I? And then intentionality. Why am I here? I am here to reflect the glory of God to a lost and dying world. And I pray that you would be a person of great praise and worship and dedication in your heart and life. Would you pray with me?
Father, I, I pray this, this day that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I know that you desire that. That's a great desire of yours. Lord, I pray that you would take away our anxieties from worshiping you. I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear you and to reverence you. I pray that we would put the centrality of worship in our hearts and our lives. I pray that praise would come from your people. I pray that you would do something new, Lord. I pray that it would be an authentic worship that comes from our hearts and our lives. I pray that it would be a clear response to the grace that you've given us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the people of Washington will know that we are a joyous church because they hear of the joy from this church that you've caused in our hearts and our lives, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd help us to shine the light of your Son. For those that are here this morning, Lord, I know that I was not saved unless it was by the radical work of your work in my heart to change me, to open my eyes. And Lord, I pray that you would do that today. For those of us that do know you, Father, we get so distracted from your cross, your son's cross. We get so distracted from worship and dedication. Lord, I pray that you would reorient us, redirect us, dedicate us to you. For the glory and honor of your son alone, in Jesus' name, amen.